Delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you. Encourage you to be turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, is a beginning point here in just a moment. I want us to establish the fact that there are two types of blindness that we read about in the Bible. One is physical blindness. If you have opened to John 9, this is where Jesus and his disciples came in contact with a man who was blind since his birth. And obviously that is talking about his physical blindness. He could not physically see with his eyes. There is also spiritual blindness as addressed in Acts chapter 28, and we'll spend a little more time there in Acts chapter 28. This is where Paul is preaching to some at Rome. And as he's preaching to them, beginning at verse 23, he preaches about the Christ being raised from the dead, testified concerning the kingdom of God, and he persuaded them concerning Jesus, the text says, concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning to evening. And so he took Old Testament passages and he addressed the subject of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Now in that context, the text tells us that the people decided that there were some who believed, verse 24, who were persuaded, but there were some who disbelieved. And verse 25 says that when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had made this statement. What statement did he make? He made a statement from Isaiah, and he quoted from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah had talked about spiritual blindness. Here's what Isaiah said, saying, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and will not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes have they closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, unless they should understand with their hearts and turn and I should heal them. You obviously are familiar with that quotation from Isaiah, probably because if it quoted often in the case of the Gospels and Jesus' ministry as he would quote that. But Paul quotes it here in this sermon, and when he got to the point in his sermon and he mentioned this, this was an immediate turnoff to some of the Jews as he was preaching about the Christ. What I want you to see in Acts chapter 28 is he mentioned spiritual blindness. Their eyes, if they close, they will not see and not perceive. They are spiritually blind. Now Saul of Tarsus himself was both spiritually and physically blind for a time. He was, when he persecuted the church of the Lord, he was spiritually blind, obviously. We won't take the time to develop Acts 8 and Acts 9. Those are passages that say he persecuted the church of God, uh, making havoc of the church, uh, dealing with men and women, casting them in prison, voicing his opinion that some should be put to death. While he was doing that, he obviously was spiritually blinded. But there was a time when he was physically blind. In fact, the Lord struck him with physical blindness. The text says in Acts 9, verses 8 and 9, the Lord struck him with blindness. Then Saul arose from the ground. This is when the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him in Damascus, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here was a time, a period of time, a short period of time where he didn't see anything and he had been struck blind by the Lord. Here's what I want us to see is that while he was physically blind, there were some things he saw about his spiritual blindness. 
So let's talk tonight about things Paul saw while he was blind. There were things that once he was blind, he began to clearly see. And in this period of blindness, he now clearly sees things that he did not see before. So let's talk about things he saw while he was blind. What kind of things did Paul see while he was blind? Well, first of all, he sees his ignorance. First of all, he sees his ignorance. While spiritually blind, he did not know he was spiritually blind. That is, all of this time and all of this period where he was persecuting the church. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 13. Paul himself writes to Timothy and reminds him that I did this while I was in ignorance. In other words, I was a persecutor of the church. Everyone who knew Paul knew that. And in verse 13 it said, although I was formerly a persecutor, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He said, while I was blind, I was spiritually blind, I was ignorant, and I did not realize how ignorant I was. I did it ignorantly while I was doing that. In fact, in Acts 23 and in verse 1, as he gives his defense before the Sanhedrin, he said, I've lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. What that means is that while he was persecuting the church, voicing his opinion, some should be put to death, casting men and women in prison, while he was making havoc of the church, he was doing what he thought was right. He says, now, I was ignorant. I didn't fully understand that, though. I was ignorant. I was spiritually blind, and I didn't know it. I had ignorance, and I didn't understand that. Now, ignorance was an excuse for him. And that's not, what his point, that's not his point in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He is not saying that that was my excuse, and I was excused, and God forgave me because of that. Let's go to Acts chapter 3 and in verse 17. This is not talking about Paul himself, though it would apply to him. It's talking about mankind in general and talking about the Jews that crucified him. And the text says in Acts 3 and in verse 17, he said, now I know that you did it in ignorance. This is talking about the crucifixion of the Lord. I know you did it in ignorance, he said, as also did your rulers. Those who shouted crucify him and put him on the cross did it in ignorance, the text said. That was no justification and that was no uh, exemption from their, their sin. Let's go to Romans chapter 10. This is a discussion concerning the Jews. We'll come back to Romans 10 a little bit later on in our study. But in Romans 10, Paul is talking about how the Jews are responsible for their condition they're in. And one of the points he deals with is their ignorance. They ignored God's plan. And what I want you to see is they rejected God in their ignorance, and yet they were still accountable for that. Notice beginning at verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He didn't say they were saved, they might be saved. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So they didn't submit to God's plan, they are not excused, but they did it in ignorance. Ignorance obviously is not an excuse. But what I'm learning from this is that ignorance must be countered. Let's go to John chapter 6, 44 and 45. What Paul sees is his ignorance, and ignorance has to be countered. Meaning by that, we have to come to a learning and a knowledge of the truth. Look at John chapter 6. Jesus is talking about those who come to God. Those come to a relationship with God, are in a harmonious relationship with God. How do they do it? He said, no one can come unto me unless the Father whom I sent draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Now notice verse 45. And as it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God, meaning they're no longer ignorant. Therefore, everyone who has heard and has learned, they're no longer ignorant, uh, from the Father comes to me. 
No one can come to the Lord until, first of all, they have learned and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, the Corinthians obviously were ignorant. Let's start with this passage, the second passage first, and then we'll go back to Acts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, remember the statement, and such were some of you. He had just enumerated a number of sins, like idolatry, and like a, a fornication, and adultery, and homosexuality. And he said, and such were some of you. Now, they were ignorant because they were raised in a pagan society. But Acts 18 and verse 8 said, many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. In other words, they were ignorant, but they learned their ignorance was countered. So what did Paul see while he was blind? He saw that indeed I have been ignorant and I was wrong in what I thought and what I did. Here's something else he saw. Here's something he didn't see before, but now in the moment of his blindness, in fact, just before he was blind, he's now seeing clearly the identity of Jesus. He sees clearly the identity of Jesus. He saw evidence that the Lord indeed had been raised from the dead. Now let's go to Acts chapter 26. What's the significance of Acts 26? Well, as we're studying tonight, we're talking about Saul. His conversion is recorded in Acts 9, Acts chapter 22 as he retells it before the Sanhedrin, and then again he retells the story in Acts chapter 26. Three accounts of that. So in this third account of that in Acts chapter 26, he tells us he saw the Lord and he concluded that indeed he was raised from the dead. So let's see what he says. Look beginning at verse 12. While thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. And at midday, O king, this is as he stands before King Agrippa, telling him the story, he said, Along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? For it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He had seen the Lord, and he's identified him as the Lord. Now look at verse 22 and 23. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both great and small, both small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. What had Moses and the prophets said? That Christ would suffer and that he must first rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So what he says to King Agrippa was, I was on the road and I saw evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead and now I know he was raised from the dead and now I'm preaching that indeed he was raised from the dead. Now Paul lists himself later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as a witness of the resurrection. That I am an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. I saw him. I was blind for three days, but during that time I reflected on what I'd just seen and what I'd learned. And I'd learned that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 4. He was buried. This is the gospel that he preached. He was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now verse 5 begins to list those who were witnesses of that. Those who saw the resurrected Lord. Now verse 8, he lists one more to the list. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So I saw evidence that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. So he proclaimed his deity, that is the deity of Christ, until his death. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. This is the first account of his conversion. Acts chapter 9 this is beginning, the beginning of the chapter, deals with his persecution of the church. Then we see the Lord appearing to him 
Then later at verse 20, immediately after his conversion, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he was the Son of God. Now here's something he didn't understand before. He didn't see that before. But in this experience on the road to Damascus, he began to see clearly the deity of Christ. In fact, he wrote in Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, that he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The very resurrection he had witnessed, the very resurrection he had seen, and therefore he declares him to be the Son of God. Now what's the value in seeing this evidence? The value of seeing this is the fact that we must come to understand this. We must accept it and embrace it and even believe it in order to be saved. Let's go to John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, as John is wrapping up this great book on the miracles of Christ, if we had to give a subject title to the great book of John, it would be the miracles of Christ. It does focus on other things, but the focal point is on the miracles of our Lord. Now, what does he say about the miracles? He said that many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, this is only the beginning of the list. I've just included a few in this book. Well, why'd you include these and what's it about? He said, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So what did I learn from that? I learned that I have to understand that and accept it and believe it in order to be saved. But I want to tell you there are many who don't accept that concept of the deity of Christ in his resurrection. For example, the Muslim does not accept that. Obviously, the atheist does not accept that. The Jews do not accept that. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not accept that. They all deny the deity of Christ. They say he was not raised from the dead. He is not the Son of God. He may be a son, but he's not the Son of God. So here's something that he clearly saw in his moment of blindness. What else did he see? Things Paul saw while he was blind. He saw his ignorance. He saw the identity of Jesus. And thirdly, he saw something he'd never seen before, and that is the fact that he was a sinner. He came to see that he had a need, a need that he had not seen. His need is he has his sins that he needs to wash away. Let's turn to Acts chapter 22 and in verse 16. When Ananias, a preacher of God, comes to him. Now, we're not told this in Acts 9, we're not told this in Acts 26, but the second account, we're told that a preacher named Ananias came to him and told him to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What did Ananias tell him? Ananias is telling him by the direction of God, you need your sins to be washed away. In fact, he identified himself later, not before this account in Acts 9, but later he identified himself as the chiefest of sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He said, I came to recognize I was the worst of sinners. But not everyone sees that need. Not everyone understands that there indeed is a need uh, for remis the remission of their sins. Let's give, me, let's give you a couple of examples of that with the Jews starting in John chapter 8 and then we'll go to the next chapter. The book of John records a number of confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the scribes and other Jews, primarily over who he is and what he did. So in John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, let's back up one verse, Jesus had made the point, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The Jews responded, look at verse 32. Look at verse, uh, that was verse 32, now verse 33. They answered and said... 
that we're Abraham's descendants and never been in bondage to anyone, how can you say you must be made free? This idea of you offering freedom from sin, some kind of freedom, we've never been in bondage to anyone. We don't have the need. We don't need the freedom that you're offering. We already have that freedom. They didn't recognize the need. Same people. Let's go to the next chapter, chapter 9 and verse 41. Jesus told those who were accusing him of wrong, because you say we see, therefore your sins remain. In other words, he's trying to get them to spiritually see, but they think they already see. Because you say we see, you, you already have your sight. You already have your spiritual vision. He said your sin remains. You still have your sin. They didn't see they had a need. Now, every accountable person must come to see that they have a need as a sinner. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 as an example of that. This is the first time the gospel was preached under the Great Commission. And on this occasion, as the gospel was proclaimed, Peter and the other apostles who were teaching began on the note that indeed you have a need. There is a need in your life. Notice what they say. Notice in verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. He is not merely telling them the story of Jesus. I want to tell you about Jesus who was crucified, but you have a problem here. You put him to death and you are guilty of sin. There's a problem you've got. And so he begins with that need. They understood that need. Look at verse 37. When they heard the message of Jesus, they responded saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, what shall we do for the remission of sins? We need the forgiveness of our sins. How do you know that's what they were asking? Because in verse 38, he told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So when they're asking, what shall we do? They're asking, what do we do to obtain the forgiveness of the sins of which you have convicted us in verse 23? They came to recognize their need. Let's go to Matthew 5 and in verse 3. Matthew 5 is, a, is the Beatitudes where Jesus is talking about the characteristic of those who comprise the kingdom. That's us. Those who are the people of God. We're in the kingdom. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, being the family of God, what's the character that you have? Well, verse 3 says you're poor in spirit. What does that mean? You come to recognize your abject poverty before God. I have a need. I am in poverty before God. Not physical, literal poverty, but there is spiritual poverty I have before God. I have a need. That's the kind of person who enters into the kingdom. Do you recognize your poverty? Here was a man, Saul of Tarsus, who came to recognize he was in poverty before God. I have a need. In Acts chapter 16 and in verse 30, the jailer recognized his need. Because he said, what must I do to be saved? I need to be saved. I recognize I'm in sin. I need something to be forgiven of my sin. Here's something else. Paul saw while he was blind. While he was blind, he saw that he was ignorant. He saw the identity of Jesus. He saw that indeed he was a sinner. And fourthly, he saw that being sincere was not enough to justify him. He saw that being sincere was not enough to justify him. And yet there are people today who have this concept that sincerity is all that matters. God doesn't care what you believe. God doesn't care what church you're in. Doesn't matter what you practice in religion as long as you are sincere. That's all that really matters. Now Paul was sincere while he was persecuting the church of God. Now remember the three accounts. And let's go now to the third one in Acts chapter 26. Go with me to Acts chapter 26. What he's saying in his defense before King Agrippa is, I thought, I really thought 
that I should oppose Jesus. That's what I thought I ought to be doing. You see, this was before my conversion, he said. He said, indeed, look at verse 9, Acts 26. I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did what I thought was right. In other words, I was sincere. Now, we've already noted Acts 23 and verse 1, he followed his conscience. In other words, I did what I thought to be right. I've lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And yet, he was still in his sins. Because up to that point, he was still in sin, and Ananias had to tell him to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, here's something we just learned from all of that. I learned that the conscience does not teach us the truth, but it, and therefore it's not our guide. Now, the conscience is important, but your conscience cannot be your guide. People often say, let your conscience be your guide. Whatever your conscience will allow you to do, then you do that. And I'm learning from that your conscience is not your guide. It doesn't teach you the truth. What the conscience is, is a witness to our action. It either approves of our action or it disapproves of our action, but it's not our guide. Let's look at Romans chapter 2 and in verse 15. Romans 2 is talking about the Gentiles. And a principle the Gentiles had adopted from the laws that the Jews had. That is the Old Testament law of Moses. There were principles there that the Gentiles took and adopted for themselves. And so what am I learning from that? In other words, their conscience is based on what you've been taught. That's what I want you to see. So look at Romans 2 and verse, verse uh, let's start at verse 14. For when Gentiles do not have, which you do not have the law, by nature do the things contained in the law, that is the law of Moses, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. How's the work of law written in their hearts? In the sense they adapted the principles of the Old Testament law, though it wasn't written to them. Their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In other words, their conscience was based on what they had taught themselves, adapting principles from the law of Moses. That's where your conscience works. Your conscience works based on what you've taught yourself or what you have been taught. If you've taught yourselves that lying is okay, your conscience says it's okay. But if you've taught yourself and have been taught lying is a sin, then your conscience is bothered when you tell a lie. That's how your conscience works. Let's look at Titus 1 and in verse 15. It's possible to have a defiled conscience. In other words, your conscience can be all skewed. Your conscience can be all wrong. Your conscience cannot be dependable as a guide. Notice Titus 1 and in verse 15. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, even their mind and conscience are defiled. Your conscience can be defiled. You see, there's a way that seems right unto man, the proverb writer would say, Proverbs 14 and in verse 12, but the way is wrong. So my conscience could be wrong. And so what did Saul see here? He saw that being sincere was not enough. Even though he's blind, he can clearly see that. But what else did he see while he's blind? While Paul was blind, he saw that prayer is not the way for God to save mankind. He saw that prayer was not the way for God to save mankind. Now, he was told all that he needed to do. Let's look at Acts chapter 22. Now, remember, I keep saying there are three accounts of his conversion. The second of those is in Acts 22. So let's go to the second account in Acts chapter 22. Paul is before the Sanhedrin. And he said that I was told by Ananias all that I needed to do. Let's see what he says. 
Look at Acts chapter 22 and in verse 10. So I said, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there it will be told all things that are appointed for you to do. You're going to go to Damascus, and you're going to be told everything you need to do, everything, all things that you need to do. Well, that's when Ananias came to him. So Ananias told him all things that he needed to do. Now, what he was told was to be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16. That's what he was told to do. He was never told in any one of the three accounts to pray. Go back and look at Acts 9 when you have the time and see if you find anything about where he was told to pray that he might be saved. Go then to Acts chapter 22 when he retells that story before the Sanhedrin and search and see if you see anything there that says he was to pray in order that he might be saved. And then go over to before the king Agrippa and see his defense there and does he say anything or is he told anything about what he's to do in order to be saved? About praying, that is, to be saved. And you won't find prayer mentioned at all. But he does pray, though. So let's look at Acts chapter 9 and verse 11. In Acts chapter 9, when the Lord told Ananias to go to Saul, he told him where he was. He's seen a vision. He said, go to the street called Straight, inquiring at the house of Judas for one Saul. For behold, he is praying. Now, he did pray. But what I want you to see is that he was told to be baptized, but he was never told to pray in order to be saved. Never told to pray in order to be saved, but he did do some praying. Ananias told him to stop that. So when Ananias got there, remember Acts 9, 11, for behold, he is praying. Ananias said, and now why tarriest thou? What are you waiting on? What Ananias is saying is that you are waiting, and as long as you're continuing to pray, you're waiting on obeying the Lord. Why are you tarrying? Arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. What I want to suggest to you is that he was told to be baptized, and when he was baptized, he would be calling on the name of the Lord. Now let's stop for a moment and talk about calling on the name of the Lord. What does that phrase mean, to call on the name of the Lord? Many of our denominational friends find that expression in Acts chapter 2. They find it in Romans chapter 10. They find it in Acts chapter 22. They find it in Joel chapter 2. And they conclude from that that calling on the name of the Lord means I'm praying to God for salvation. So you pray and you pray the sinner's prayer. And the sinner's prayer is that you ask God to save you, and so you're showing faith, and with that prayer, now God saves you. And so just look up on the internet sometime, do a Google search for the sinner's prayer, and you'll find an example of the sinner's prayer. And most of our denominational friends encourage praying the sinner's prayer in order that you might be saved. And there are those who think calling on the name of the Lord means that you're praying to God for salvation. Well, let's see what that means as per the context of Acts chapter 2. So if you don't have this marked in your Bible, this might be a good occasion to mark this. You probably have it marked from another study, but let's go to Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 21. He quotes from Joel 2 that if one would call, he could be saved. He said Joel had said, he's quoting from Joel. He in fact said this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. And at the end of the quotation at verse 21, Joel had said, whoever would call on the name of the Lord could be saved. Now drop down to verse 47. Verse 47 says, they were saved. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So you might make a connection between verse 21 and verse 47. If they call, they would be saved. Verse 47 said, they were saved. 
So I have to conclude that whatever they did between verse 21 and verse 47 is what's involved in calling on the name of the Lord. You see how I got there? If you call, you'll be saved. They were saved. They must have called. So what they do between verse 21 and verse 27? Here's what they were told to do. They were told to hear verse 22. You might underline that. You men of Israel, hear these words. They were told to hear the gospel. Next, they were told to believe, verse 37. Let all the house of Israel, here's your word, know assuredly. They were told to believe. But that's not all. When they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? They were told to repent, verse 38, and be baptized. Did they do that? Verse 41 said they did. So you see how the context just told me what it meant to call on the name of the Lord? If you call, you'll be saved. They were saved. That means they called. What did they do? Nothing mentioned about praying, but they were told to hear the gospel, believe and repent and be baptized. So when they heard and they believed and they repented and they were baptized, they called on the name of the Lord. Here's a second passage that defines that for a very text. And now why are you waiting? He was praying, remember, Acts 9, verse 10. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. In other words, when you arise and when you are baptized, you will be calling on the name of the Lord. That harmonizes with Acts 2, doesn't it? Here's a third passage that defines that for us. In Romans chapter 10 and in verse 13, a quotation again from Joel 2:32. Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is where he raises the question, how can they call on whom they've not believed? And how should they believe on him and whom they've not heard? How should they hear without a preacher? Then he goes on to say how beautiful the feet of those who preach the gospel and bring glad tidings, uh, peace and bring uh, glad tidings of good things. That gets us all the way down here to verse, in the verse 15. So the preacher goes and preaches and they hear the gospel and then they believe and then they can call. But, important word, verse 16, but, but what? They didn't call. That's not what he says. He said they have not all obeyed the gospel. What does that mean? That he's using the word call and obedience synonymous in this context. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Meaning they didn't call. They could have called, but they didn't call. But he said they didn't obey. Now that harmonizes with Acts 2 and Acts 22. Now I know what it means to call on the name of the Lord. And what Saul saw while he was blind was that prayer was not the way to save, but calling on the name of the Lord was the way to be saved. That is obedience to the gospel. What did Paul see while he was blind? What he saw while he was blind was that he could not simply imitate his ancestors. That he could not merely and simply imitate his ancestors. Paul's ancestors had followed the law of Moses, the Jewish system. In fact, let's go to Acts chapter 26. This was the third of those three accounts that we've been talking about. Look at verses 4 and 5. He was brought up in the Jewish religion, he said. This is how I was raised. I was raised in the Jewish religion. And so in this account, in Acts chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, he said, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all Jews know. In other words, everybody who is anybody among the Jews knows and knows anything about me, knows how I was raised. What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying, verse 5, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify according to the strictest sect of the religion I lived a Pharisee. I was raised among Pharisees. I was a Pharisee. I was raised in a family of Pharisees. 
I was raised among the Jews in the Jewish religion. Let's go over to Philippians chapter 3, where he writes to the church at Philippi, and he talks about his past. And he says, beginning at verse 4, that if anyone had confidence in the flesh, I the more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is of the law, he said, blameless and on down the line. What I'm trying to present before us, which we already know, is the fact that he was brought up in the Jewish religion. And yet that law was taken out of the way, Colossians 2 and in verse 14. And Acts 13 and verse 39, that could not justify them. They were not justified by the law of Moses. Paul came to see that. If Jesus was raised from the dead, which he saw and understood, then I'm wrong about Jesus, which means I'm wrong about the Jewish religion. He now begins to realize, and what he's seeing is my ancestors, my family religion, what my family's always believed is something that I can't imitate. I can't follow that at all. You see, many have had to turn from their family religion. Many have had to do that. Abraham did. Go to Joshua 24 quickly and look at verse... Verse 2, Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2. I want you to notice a reminder about Abraham, that Abraham was brought up among idolatry. That Joshua said to all the people, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. See, Abraham had to leave that family religion of idolatry. He could think about, you know, my daddy was an idolater. My daddy would raise me in idolatry. My dad taught idolatry. My dad worshiped idols. But I've got to turn and serve the living God. In fact, the Thessalonians did, just like Abraham did. They turned from idols to serve the living God. The Corinthians turned from paganism, part of which involves sexuality being a part of their religion, immorality being a part of their religion. Consequently, then, they turn from their family religion. And yet there are those who have the concept that if I have to turn from my family religion, I'm turning my back on my mother and on my grandmother and on my great-grandmother, who all believe that doctrine. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that at all. Paul saw something while he was blind, and what he saw was, I can't imitate the, fam the religion of my ancestors. What did Paul see while he was blind? He saw a number of things, perhaps more than we even have listed here. While blind, he began to see things that he had never seen before, never could clearly see before. But now in this moment of blindness, he can look back and say, you know what? I can see that I was ignorant. I can see the identity of Jesus. I can see that I'm a sinner and I need to do something about it. I can see that sincerity is not enough to save me. And I can see that prayer is not the way for God to save me. And furthermore, I can't follow my family religion. What lessons to learn from a man who was blind and yet he saw all of that. And we can see it as well. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the very thing Paul saw while he was blind? Would you repent of your sins, the very thing he does while he's blind? And would you be baptized for the remission of sins that you might be saved, and that you might have the hope of heaven in the afterwild? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?